0: listening to the best of living wealthy radio with Teresa Kuhn. Be sure to catch our show live every Sunday on 1370 AM Austin. For information, archives and upcoming presentations, visit our website at www.livingwealthyradio.com. Welcome to Living Wealthy Radio with your host Teresa Kuhn. Good
1: afternoon, you're listening to Living Wealthy Radio, heard every Sunday at noon here on Talk Radio, 1370 AM, streaming live at talk1370.com. I'm Teresa Kuhn, helping you live wealthier. Resources are available for you at livingwealthyradio.com. Who controls today's conversation about what education should be in the classroom? Bill Gates, the media, politicians? Why? What about the teachers? Where is their voice? Social experiments and assumptions aside, shouldn't we follow the models implemented by the successful teachers who inspire and train and motivate our children? With one-size-fits-all models like Common Core being thrust upon us and our kids, isn't it time to step back and think about the role of the teacher in the classroom and how that human element can make all the difference? Our guest today, David Green, educator, author, and champion of experimental learning. He's going to help us better understand why we need a system of education that gives teachers the freedom and flexibility to focus on our children individually to inspire them to be great in their own ways. David, what is experiential learning?
0: Uh, experiential learning, and thank you, by the way, for having me on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Um, Sure. Um, Experiential learning comes about in a number of ways. It can come about within a classroom, um, and it can come about by programs that allow students, especially high school students, to learn about something they're passionate about outside the classroom. Inside the classroom, they revolve more around project-based learning, where there's a problem to be solved or there's an issue to be dealt with. Or um, it might be as simple as teaching physics, in elementary school with um, popsicle sticks about how to build a bridge to support a toy truck to go over it. That's experiential learning because it's hands-on. It's doing rather than being told or, or actually even uh, playing around with a computer screen. At the high school level, it can be a program such as the WISE program that I'm affiliated with that has high school second semester seniors, including, by the way, both of my own children, who for uh, English and social studies credit go out, work on a project of their own um, interest, that could be so wide ranging and they have a mentor in the school a teacher or staff member they work with as well as an outside expert outside the school where they go about learning more about the project and reading about it and writing about it and experimenting with it um, giving a a presentation at the end um, so that they also can show what they've learned how they've learned it and how they've grown as a result of it all with an assessment that's narrative and far more um, important in terms of student growth and something we get in a multiple choice test
1: well, give me examples specific examples of, of what one of these projects would look like
0: well um, i'll give you i 'll I'll, I'll give you for example my son who did it when uh, he was a sophomore in high school he had an interest in um, potentially becoming a doctor when he was a senior and he was allowed to to do this he he was a uh, doing this this program what he was able to do was work with an orthopedist in a hospital setting uh in the school that he went to the program was full time for 6 weeks the last 6 weeks weeks of the school so he did 30 hours a week uh working with him and also a physical therapist so he really got an understanding of what orthopedics was, what the life of an orthopedic surgeon was, and what the same thing was true with the head of a physical um, training um, group within the hospital for special surgery. So he was able to do that. He observed the surgeries, etc., etc. And at the end of this whole thing, he came out convinced that he did want to be a doctor. He is now a second-year med student at Tulane. Awesome. Um, so that's career exploration. Um, On the other hand, I'll I'll give you another case in point, Um, another actual career explorer um, uh, who was a senior who never, in his own words, never liked high school. He was a gadfly. Uh, Teachers didn't like him because he had the audacity to speak for himself. Um, He wanted to, when he was a junior, he wanted to put together a... um, a newspaper, a magazine that did sports, because he wanted—he—he he, he thought at some point in the future he wanted to be a sports journalist. So he decided to do that, except he ran into trouble with the principal and the, the, the teacher in the school who was head of the, um, the student activities, who said, you cannot compete with the school newspaper. And, of course, he said, but the school newspapers are for free. There's no competition. I'm not, you know, there's no competing against it. So they said you could do something, but it only can do with outside sports. It can't do with inside the school sports. So he went and did that. The following year, because he asked me to be the advisor to that, he asked me to be his mentor in this program. I said, sure. What do you want to do? What are you you interested in? He says, well, I want to explore another avenue in journalism. Uh, I I love reading Stuart Elliott, who was the um, advertising editor of the New York Times. And I'm going to go get a job with him. And I said, do you realize how hard that is? The New York Times... Barely takes college interns. He said, "Yeah, but I'm going to try." So he was very perseverant. He kept contacting, contacting him. Con- we might call it badgering. Stuart Elliott finally came, gave in, gave him an interview, and and allowed him to work. He says, "But no one else can know what you're really doing here. You're going to come every day as a guest, and I'll just give you things to do, and you can learn to trade." So he was sitting at Stuart Elliott's desk one day, and a woman came over. And this was in this was in 1995. So this was the very fledgling column about technology that now appears on a three-page long Tuesday, you know, section in the in the Times. And she saw him, and he was explaining to somebody why modems made noise. If you remember all those televiz- uh, telephone modems, sure. they would go, Kh-h-h-h-h-h-h. you know, sound more like a wounded duck. So he explained it. Says, "Okay, write a paragraph about that." And so now he writes the paragraph about it. He gets in, no byline. They said that was wonderful. He had to give up who he was because now he had an identity. Well, it turned out to be Andrew Ross Sorkin, the author of Too Big to Fail, and he has been working for the Times, um, and he actually wrote a major um, essay in the New York Times Magazine about Bill Gates and his big history thing. So those are two career exploration. Kids have done everything from studying the culture of of surfing to going to New Zealand to the land. I didn't know this, but it's the land of geckos. And so um, he went to New Zealand to study with a professor uh, because he had pet geckos and he wanted to explore more about that, that lizard, I guess. So There have been, in our program, and there are other programs like it, but in our program over the last 40 years, they've had about 40,000 different stories about different kids doing different things, ranging from, uh, I want to be a second-grade teacher, and so let me go back in my second-grade teacher's classroom to a couple of the stories that I told you. But each one of them, uh, based upon the interest and desire of the particular student.
1: So... You used to teach high school, right? Yes. And when did you first realize that the whole educational system was going in the wrong direction?
0: Well, first of all, that's a misnomer. It's not true. Um, what what part is not true? Uh, that the whole, education, the whole education system is going in the wrong direction. Got it. Um, it it's perspective, and it depends upon the uh, source of your information. So, for example, when you poll parents, about their individual schools, their individual schools are rate B, B-plus, and higher. But when you poll them about the state of education as a whole, it's a C or a D. So the question is, why is that? Uh, when you take a look at it, there are three common denominators that determine whether a school and or a district is successful. One is affluence. The second thing are uh, the, the second issue are the social environments that go along with the level of affluence or lack of in that issue in, in that district. And the third, interestingly enough, that I found out through research, is mothers' educational attainment level. So where you have districts where those three are positive, the schools are great. Where you have districts mostly in poor urban areas and poor rural areas, the schools are bad, and there is a systematic problem to be solved. So it's not the whole education system. It's really a district-by-district, school-by-school phenomenon that we have to look at. And it's much more complex than what a lot of people would have you believe.
1: Well, isn't Common Core about um, centralizing and making every district, every school system look and operate and feel the same way?
0: Well, that's see. That is um, a response to the issue that I just said because not every, not every, not every school system needs to be uplifted. In fact, for many schools and many school districts, what the Common Core asks them to do actually brings down the standards that they have been working on. In New York State, that happens particularly because New York State has always had uh, a set of K-12 through standards, syllabi, uh, suggested curricula. Now, Common Core really is short for Common Core State Standards because legally, through uh, two uh, federal acts, um, the United States government, federal government, cannot, by law, create a standardized curriculum across all 50 states and its territories. Uh, so they don't use the word curriculum, they use the word standards. But. It, by, it, because they can't create it, uh, the government, National Governors Association, along with several foundations, put together, uh, hired a group called Achieve Inc., headed by David Coleman, who also is the head of uh, ETS, a testing service that gives us things like the AP exams and the College Board, and um, funded a great deal by Bill Gates and, and other foundations, uh, decided that they needed to have a set of common, and I'll use their word, standards. Because since 2001, we've had sets of standard, high stakes, standardized testing going on, um, and they realize well, how can we have sets of sort of national or statewide sets of high t- high stakes tests if we don't have something standard to test them on? So the Common Core came about last in this sequence, and I always tell people it's just the tip of the iceberg, And but the major part of the iceberg has been developing for decades below the surface of the water that we haven't seen. So um, in some cases, look, as I said earlier, in some cases, the generic themes and ideas of common the Common Core state standards are necessary. Look, who's against better critical thinking? who's against higher reading skills who's against better problem solving skills who's against getting kids ready to get out of high school and live their life whatever they choose to do all of those are great and grand ideas but depending upon the district and state you've been in some have been far more successful at doing that than others so this is a more, again i point out it's far more complex than we've led to believe been led to believe
1: so what is your solution, or what what do you recommend
0: for which question?
1: For to change the high, let's let's talk about the high school experience for kids. Sure. You talk about experiential learning and how important that is for kids. Why? Why?
0: Well, Go ahead. No, 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 no. Yo, I'll finish the question.
1: Okay. So. You know, implementing some kind of experiment, experiential learning experience, you know, obviously involving the kids and getting them involved in something that they're interested in is much more interesting and exciting than sitting in a classroom all day long, right? Exactly. And so it's, it's very obvious, um, or, or at some level it's very obvious, why something like that would be so great for the kids and how kids would be motivated to participate. Um, but how would you shift or change or tweak the educational experience for high schoolers today? If you it's had a magic question. wand,
0: what yeah. would you do? <laughs> it, it's, it's an interesting question, and I and colleagues uh, that I've worked with um, ever since I started teaching back in 1970 have always been trying to answer that question and trying to solve it in our own small ways wherever we could in our own schools. And I was l- lucky enough to have schools and leaders of schools who allowed us to experiment with ideas that would help make our students' experiences better and have a better outcome for them. Um, three years ago, I actually gave a workshop in, in uh, Washington, D.C. as part of the Save Our Schools March and Conference um, that was more famous for Matt Damon being there than anything else, um, called Reinvigorating the, the, high, the American High School. and. Obviously, not everything is going to be interesting. <laughs> you know, there are things that are necessary to learn that that um, just don't generate interest. And, again, that's also individuals. So, uh, for example, uh, foreign language was uh, foreign to me and totally uninteresting. But to other kids, it, it was something they reveled in. Uh, history and, and literature are things that other kids love. So you, you can't go necessarily by that. But you have to give them an opportunity to do it. And as a capstone for high school seniors who have already gone through uh, the requirements that we as a society have deemed necessary for success in future life, um, as a capstone, this experiential learning is, I think, extremely important because it allows them to physically apply the information that they've learned and and I'm always and I've always been one who's supported the idea that we need to learn how to manipulate information and not have information manipulate us and the only way you can do that is through application but as far as the regular classroom is concerned there's a lot to be done there as well and what can be done there is very simply based upon what we know has worked the more Students are engaged and involved in their learning no matter whether or not the subject is interesting to them or not the better they do and so what we have to continuously base our experiment in education on because our education is always an experiment we're always trying to see what works best is how can you get individual kids who are so different from one another to be engaged in a subject they all have to learn. And that takes a set of skills and a set of understandings that the best teachers have, and they know how to develop relationships. They know how to develop a a connection between students that draws the best out of them because they understand how they learn best. One of the questions that always comes up is the one about assessment, and, you know, the question between standardized tests and assessments. Well one of the things that I learned when I was in second grade is that we all learn separ- and I and this was because of my second grade teacher who is the model for everything I have ever done since then um she understood that each of us has our, our own interests and our own means of developing them, and she understood how to reach each one of us. And she gave us opportunities to express how we learned what we learned differently. Some, Even in second grade, and this is some, this true, some kids are better at expressing what they've learned through writing. Some are better at expressing what they learn through action. Some are—they're they're, again very—you know—so you're linear learning, you have uh, ta- uh, tactile learning, you have oral—a u r a l—because you learn better through listening. So you have to have a situation where all the senses are used to teach kids, not all at the same time because that would be sensory, sensory overload, but to allow the learning style of each kid to come through, and also the in the. In the flip side of that, when you assess them to allow the best, they have to learn how to be assessed in all these areas, but they also have to be given the opportunity to express themselves in the ways that they best can do that. And so it's a combination of all of those things, and I think, which include group learning, which include uh, simulations, which in, which include primarily uh, discussion of things, and, and the art of questioning that teachers develop is so important in doing that, to be able to get kids to be able to not just answer with a one-word guttural response, but to be able to start with the one-word guttural response and then go on and explain what they mean and why they why they think that. So those are all things that we can do, and the best schools and the best teachers do them, and what we need to do as a nation is to stop searching for answers from pie-in-the-sky people or corporations and simply say well we have thousands of wonderful models let's use them and find ways to get that those models to be spread around the rest of the country what's interesting to note is that the, the international star of education finland besides all the other factors that have ranked it number one when they redevelop their school system in the early 1990s and it was a miserable school system before that they really did answer your question as a nation do you know what they modeled their primary learning processes on no clue what we were doing in the united states in the 1960s and 70s
1: so what were we doing back then
0: what I was, what I'm telling you now, ah. this kind of this with this kind of uh, inquiry-based learning, discussion-based learning, student-centered learning, where the student is not a, uh, with a, with a, excuse me, with the teacher is not controlling the class, the teacher is rather conducting the class the same way a jazz band leader, and I'm using that analogy specifically, a jazz band leader, uh, even the composer of the piece understands that there's a central core of the piece, but at the same time, he has to give his his instrumentalist the, the right to improvise and show off what they can do. And that's, in a nutshell, the kind of stuff that the United States, many schools, many high schools especially, were working on.
1: So... Is this in any way like the Socratic method of teaching? The,
0: that's that actually them? one of them. That is one of that's one of the methods that is used.
1: Okay, because I that's I did go to law one. school, yes. and that is a very very effective way of Absolutely. engaging yep. the student in the conversation instead of the teacher, uh, the teacher. Providing the information, the student it, is engaged it, in having to communicate and it, have a discussion. It's
0: far, far different from the Kingsfield model in the paper chase.
1: Exactly, exactly. And
0: that's the difference.
1: Okay, okay. So Perfect that's analogy. what you're talking about. And I think most, yes. most uh, of our listeners are familiar, at least, with the Socratic method, where it's, it's their questions. It's question-based learning.
0: It is questions-based learning and where the the teacher is a facilitator and a guide as opposed to what too many people think teachers, uh, especially at the high school level's job, is, is of imparting information. And that's not our job. Our job is to allow kids to sift through the information, and just as a lawyer needs to, find the evidence to support your point of view or case and then be able to present it in a means that's clear, understandable, and convincing.
1: Mm -hmm. Our guest today is David Green, and we are discussing the role of the teacher in the classroom. Our kids are individuals. They deserve an education that recognizes this, and we'll discuss this and much more when we return from a quick break. This is Teresa Kuhn with Living Wealthy Radio.
0: Living Wealthy Radio. Visit Teresa's team online at livingwealthyradio.com, 1-800-382-0830 now. Call 1-800-382-0830. Welcome back, Austin, to Living Wealthy Radio with Teresa Kuhn.
1: If you're just now joining us, we're speaking with educator and advocate of experiential learning, David Green, about how our educational system is changing to a one-size-fits-all approach and how outstanding teachers are the solution. So, David, share with us your, your thinking on boys in the modern classroom. What is the problem and why are boys failing?
0: um it, it, This is an interesting thing, and actually, I started getting involved in this uh because of a very personal issue. Uh, my son, who I mentioned earlier, is now a second year med student uh, when he was younger, and he 's one of those kids who's like the youngest in his grade because of his birthday. Um so he had a little maturity issues because he was so young. Uh we were getting calls from teachers, they wanted to test him, they thought he had ADHD, da 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 and he was disruptive, but he really wasn't. He was curious and, and, and uh and vocal. Um as I was when I was in the first grade, when I, way back in the 1950s, when I was in the first grade, and my mother was called in because my first grade teacher wanted to have me tested. So this sort of bing rang a bell, and I was very curious about what was going on. So I started doing some research in the field. And um, this was right after um, the early 1990s push for uh, equity in schools based upon gender. So, um, Schools like uh, books like I think Raising Ophelia uh, were out there, and, and, and as teachers, we were being taught or, at, through our professional development how to get uh, girls to come out of that sort of wallflower kind of stage that they were in, and to become more as assertive as as some of the boys had been. And all of that is absolute, was absolutely necessary, and it was, again, part of the idea of individualizing. You have to understand what makes kids tick to be able to get them to be more successful. So I started doing some research in it. Um, I met some other people who were doing research in it. And uh, in the school district that I had, I was sent to um, a conference at Wellesley. It was a it a women's college who was doing a conference on the study of boys in schools. And so I presented some of the findings and basically got hooted uh, because their idea of the issue with boys is that you had to train them to be less like boys. Um, so I eventually, uh, somebody tapped me on the shoulder and said, uh, would you mind if I interviewed you? I'm writing a book. It was Christine Hoff Summers um, who wrote the book, the war against boys. And so part of the, uh, Research I had done, uh, anecdotally, was included in the book. So I got even more interested and started to do more. So what I found, to to get to the question, is that basically we haven't, and this is true just totally in education these days. This is one of the issues that we have to deal with, with as you mentioned earlier, this top-down approach. We have failed to pay attention to any of the sociological pedagogical and biological research. And so one of the most consistent findings in research is that over the past not just 12 years, but 30, in a, almost 20 to 30 years, um, as schools have moved to teaching methods that favor more about how schools learn, more linear learning, uh, reading and writing, and, and kind of straightforward and, and standardized test-taking is part of that. And so... Uh, when they added that, they kind of looked at that and they said, well, at the same time we're doing more of this, boys seem to be doing more, uh, excuse me, boys seem to be far less successful and they're faring less and less well in school. And then we, we begin to see that there is a crisis. So little by little, more and more people started asking the question because from the 1970s on, you didn't want to ask that question because then you would be a sexist and we realize that um you you can't be a, a sexist if you're trying to help all kids and find out what they need to t- to do individually, and if there are gender issues involved, then you need to be able to help girls in the way that makes them better learners and help boys in the way that makes them better learners. So other people jumped on board, Um, one of whom is a woman by the name of Peg Tire, T-Y-R-E, who wrote an article in Newsweek when she was a journalist there and then went on to write a book, The Trouble with Boys, and I've spoken with her on on this subject, and she always starts out everything by saying, I'm a feminist, but I have two sons. And because I have two sons, I had to learn some things I didn't want to learn. And so, some of the things that we've learned, uh, for example, and uh, uh, some some quick statistics, uh, recent studies. Um, the the uh, this goes back; it's about ten years, but the percentages are roughly the same. The rate of all male students graduating high school is about seven percent lower than the rate of all female students. Can, can and the you rate, repeat that, uh, please? The rate at which male students graduate high school is seven percent lower than the rate at which female students graduate high school. Okay. The rate at which all uh, black males black males graduate high schools is twenty three percent lower than the rate of all female students graduating high school. So those are high school statistics. What gets more educated people? uh to understand it is actually what goes on in college which is worse it, it it's approaching a, a 60 40% admissions rate in college female to male
1: it's crazy i know
0: well wh- here are the What's crazier is that for every 100 men who graduate college 137 women graduate for every 100 men who get a master's degree over 130 um have grad, have earned a master's degree and the rates keep getting higher year by year so that the rate at which i think the the chart this is this is done by the, uh, by the, by uh, by the US Department of Education uh by 2019 what they're predicting is that it used to be about a 2 to 1 ratio Females to males graduate. Excuse me, males to females graduating college uh, in the early 60s, and they're predicting by 2019 that will have flipped a two-to-one ratio of women graduating college compared to men. So, these these are these are statistics by by national standards, um, by by the Bureau of Labor, by the Department of Education, um, by by groups who are very reliable in their findings. And so what they've also found is that if you take a look at any high school, boys are greatly outnumbered in every extracurricular activity outside of sports. Um, by 12, they're twice as likely to have repeated a grade in school. Um, they are um, three times as likely to be diagnosed with ADHD. ADHD. Ten times, and here's and this is what actually started my hunt in this. They are ten times as likely to be referred for possible ADHD testing, especially in the early grades. They are five times as likely to commit suicide, and three times as likely to be expelled. And the funniest one, although it's the saddest one at the same time, uh, and especially as we're now starting pre universal pre K here in New York's in New York City. Um, Preschool boys are expelled at a rate of about four and a half times the rate of girls. Expelled from preschool. That's yeah. the kind of stuff that we're doing. So that when you take a look at it, and here I am, maybe the average boy of, oh God, this is this is going to be um, hurtful to say, of 50 to 75 years ago, 50 is more likely. Uh, the average boy of, of, let's say, 50 years ago would be... V- very likely to be diagnosed or referred to be diagnosed with ADHD today, especially if they were bored and gifted. So that's the situation we're facing. And um, the, this quest for standardization and um, prepping for tests simply has exacerbated the problem uh, even, even greater than these statistics have shown.
1: As as the mother of a son, of a boy, right? And I've, I've watched my son, and we've, been, we've used alternative educational methods for, for my child because I learned in my studying that boys learn differently than girls. And right. in my opinion, and I'm not an expert at this, but in my opinion, the educational system is geared towards linear learning and really geared towards teaching girls.
0: That's Girl- what the research has found
1: fit very nicely inside a classroom, and they get along very nicely in your typical classroom. they're,
0: They're more emotive. They they get along with uh, adult women better, who are the predominant um, teacher, you know, staff teachers, especially in the elementary schools. They they learn to read faster. Uh, one of the interesting things in brain science that I found out, and it's just been rep- this study has been replicated a number of times, is that when you look at the cognitive development and ability to learn to read, uh, the average five year old boy, when compared to the average five year old girl, is more like a three and a half year old girl. And so they're asking this child who behaviorally, cognitively, and biologically is anywhere from on average a year to two years behind emotionally, socially, and cognitively to do these kinds of things at an increased rate where they're now forcing kids to learn how to read in kindergarten who are not ready. And what happens is they don't want to learn. They get frustrated. They they feel uh, as if they're failures. And what happens with boys, more so than girls, is they tend to fight or flight. And so they either fight or show some negative emotion, which uh, says, oh, you have to be referred, or they just withdraw and, and choose not to, not to which is often the point. case.
1: Right, and that's so sad because at a very early age, uh, they – become labeled and they internalize that school is not a safe fun place for them yes and they carry that forward for years and i mean here's the proof right for for so long and yes it was necessary for girls to have the same opportunities as boys absolutely without a doubt but i think what's happened is that shift right has made it where boys don't Feel welcome at school, and unless they 're able to um, to figure out a way to fit into school they 're left out
0: yeah and when we when we think about things in a historical manner because I taught history, and i 'm a historian, and when I look back and I try to compare what 's gone on through various um, ages of education in this country. When we now talk about, in the 21st century, the college and career-ready skills really aren't that much different Um, for those people we want to have leadership skills, as opposed to those people we just want to be laborers. So we teach people to be obedient to be laborers, which is what this top-down public school system kind of thing is going on now. But the people who want to be leaders go to private schools. Um, and they learn to to lead and they don 't have and interesting private schools and for those classes of people do not follow they do not have to follow common core they don 't have to take standardized tests they can still do freely the kinds of things that all kids were able to do in all public schools so we 're creating this two class system, and when we take a look at the, the one thing that everyone learned. The one method everyone learned, male or female, males perhaps more, it's the concept of apprenticeship. And what's apprenticeship? Experiential learning. And more and more that's being taken away. There's, in many kindergarten classes, you don't even have block time anymore because they have to learn to read faster, even if they're not ready.
1: And boys, everybody knows, boys Need to move, all kids need to move, but especially yes. boys they 're just so you know large motor skill driven yes. and really what we 're having and I know this I work with money, I have a ton of clients that are single women who tell me they they can 't find men that are responsible and that are at par with them. I mean there yes. really is becoming you know this there's this this uh, i don't know how to say it this vacuum or this uh-huh. uh, this vacuum of men we're failing our boys, I believe, at the educational level where it affects them for the rest of their
0: lives. The, the research, again, uh, actually shows that there are a number of studies. Uh, by the way, the U.K. and Australia are way ahead on, on these things than, than we are. And they have found that when they interview um, young women, late teens, early 20s, that is a common, common statement that they don't have anybody that is their intellect they don't have enough choice for uh intellectual companionship let alone emotional companionship
1: that's very sad yeah and that's a huge huge problem and I'm, i'm thrilled for the girls I mean, I'm one that's, you know, I have a graduate degree. I have a law degree. I, I've got a successful business. Like, I figured out and the so girl part. so does
0: my wife and so does my daughter. They're both PhDs in psychology.
1: Awesome. Practicing
0: psychologists.
1: And our boys have figured it out or we've helped them figure it out. But for the rest of the boys, the ones that are failing and the numbers, you were talking about how it's becoming the, the, the percentage of, of boys and girls, it's becoming greater and greater. I see this as a huge society issue.
0: It, it is, and it's it's one that um, it, now I've been looking at this since ni- mid 1990s. And it was just starting to come out a little bit more, but then and more and more people began to see it, and it became a, a bigger an issue, and, and a lot of a lot more stuff was written about it. Uh, Summers' books, there are there are a number of books on the issue. Uh, Peg Tires' book, and a number of other authors have written on it. But now we have gotten so wrapped up in the other educational issues that that this this isn't even. This isn't, hasn't even taken a backdoor. It's, it's taken a backdoor in another's house, in another neighborhood, in another town. That's how far back it's been pushed because everybody's uh, pushed now, uh, regardless of which side of the, the, the um, no-child-left-behind, race-to-the-top, high-stakes testing, Common Core issues that you're on, everybody's focused on those, and this other issue has gone off to the side.
1: What will our future look like without educated boys
0: um, i'm not sure <laughs> I, I, well you know, I, in,
1: I would it, guess it, it, that there will be more crime there will be more like, unemployment more unemployment, more divorce or more yep. uh broken families right there
0: are there're going to be a there' are going to be a lot more societal issues mm-hmm. that are going to be a lot more similar nationwide to the societal images that have been going on in urban predominantly african-american societies uh, subcultures for generations because when it was happening in poor predominantly black neighborhoods the rest of america really didn't care they don't pay attention because it's just going on over there It has nothing to do with us And and if if you look at at African-American communities, you will see this exact problem has been going on for generations, that more black women get ahead. I mean, the statistics show it, and what you're going to see is a replication of that, um, that the statistics have always shown that that, that black women are, are, are more likely to get ahead professionally than black males, the high crime rate, higher crime rate. Uh, the higher poverty rate, and all of those things. And it was ignored because in our society we tend to ignore African American problems unless they get flashed up on the, the front page and involve the rest of us. And this is, and you're right, and I think that, again, we don't have to look too far forward. We can look back and see exactly what's going to happen because if we continue to ignore a certain population, and not deal with their issues the way they need to be dealt with. You're right; those are the kinds of problems that are going to be the result. So sad. Absolutely, it's been sad for a small segment of our population, and it's going to get worse for a larger segment.
1: Tragic, absolutely. This needs to be, this needs to be given so much attention. We're talking about our boys, our men.
0: Well, what's, what's ironic? is that Arnie Duncan's words are going to come back to haunt him on this as well. Um because he's, you know, infamously quoted as saying, you know, uh, you know, the middle-class soccer moms, you know, wouldn't pay attention to this because, you know, they they realize their their kids aren't as smart as they thought they were. Well, you know, we know how things work in this country when um when middle class gets riled up and when middle-class women get riled up, um that's the beginning of a movement, and that's when things can possibly change. And um, the more and more people see how all of these educational policies are affecting all their kids, and if they're like you or they're like Peg Tyre or they're like me or like a lot of mothers who see what's going on with their sons, they're going to be more and more people pushing back against the arrogance, in a sense, of the policymakers.
1: Well, I can tell you that the moms that I speak with that have boys um we we're talking about it, we've seen it. And for that reason I chose alternatives for my son. And uh thank God he does great. In in, a, in an environment that suits him, that's good for him, right? Uh
0: yeah.
1: because he I I believe the traditional system wasn't appropriate for him, but not everybody has the ability to make the choices that I've made for financial reasons or other reasons,
0: right? Yeah, yeah, and and that's very true. Um, I was down... um, I've I've spoken to groups from every possible political affiliation and ideology over the last few years. Um, And I was down in South Carolina talking to a group primarily of mothers, many of them homeschool their kids, and... We were talking about this, and and very honestly we were saying, you know, listen, um, and I had gotten a, uh, at least some, some. Uh, they had heard me talk and heard all the things that I said, so they, they had trust in what I was saying. I said, what you're doing can be either very good or very dangerous, because we're all not prepared to do that. Um, you know, it's a little bit of a, well, almost anybody can teach, you know, um, kind of thing. So you're right. You have to have the right sets of circumstances. You have to be able to do it. Some of them, you know, this whole issue about charter schools go back, goes back to a time, again, 20 years ago, when uh, teachers and parents... We're saying, you know, what if we work together to create alternative public high schools that can model the kinds of alternative alternative learning uh, means that can be then used by regular public schools? So, again, back in the 1970s, a slew of alternative schools opened up, especially at the high school level, where kids who did not fit the traditional mold would be able to exist, survive, and thrive in a smaller alternative setting – that fit their needs, and there are still hundreds of these alternative high schools all across the country uh, that are part of the public school system but have much more of a community-based understanding of what works, and community means not just parental involvement, which is very strong in many of these, but also the students have a sense of being owning their own community and having a voice in how the school is actually run. Incredibly empowering.
1: Well, David, if I may impose on you what I think is uh, just such an important issue for you to discuss and keep at the forefront of the school systems, of the educators, of the parents, of really the politicians, those that can help shape the educational reform moving forward for our, for our boys, and and not to exclude the girls. The girls right now oh, are doing great, right? You can't. It's, right? Not, you can't. It's,
0: it's, it's, it's not an either-or issue. It's a, how do you reach, and again, so whether you break it down by gender or learning style or economic condition or socioeconomic condition, what makes... school work or teacher work or district work is the ability to understand how to reach as many kids as you can understanding who they are and where they come from
1: very very well said we have unfortunately run out of time and uh, we will post a recording of the show on livingwealthyradio.com along with the link to your website david Thank you so much for joining us today.
0: And, and let me let me add that if they want to hear more or read more about what I've done, they can get my book, which is called Doing the Right Thing, A Teacher Speaks.
1: Awesome. And your website is dcgmentor.wordpress.com, and we'll also yes. have the link on the website. Again, thank you so much, David.
0: Thank you for having me. Take care. Bye-bye.
1: You've been listening to Living Wealthy Radio on Talk 1370 and streaming live at Talk1370.com. I'm Teresa Kuhn, and I hope you'll join me again next week as I show you ways to live wealthier. Resources are available for you on our website at LivingWealthyRadio.com.